Proverbs, and we start a new sermon series this, uh, this morning, brand new. We've journeyed through Ephesians together, we've had some standalone messages, we talked through a series on community, and now we're launching back into a book study, and this is going to be a little different. Proverbs and Psalms together in some ways. This sermon series is called Wisdom and Worship, Wisdom and Worship. Now, I asked last week at the end of the service, how many of you uh, have ever heard an expositional treatment, an expositional sermon series on the book of Proverbs? And I think there were like two or three hands raised. I was home yesterday visiting, and I got home Friday uh, to where I, I grew up in Columbus at my grandmother's house, and she's now 79, going on 80 and pastor's wife for 50 years, and we were sitting together, everybody else had gone to bed, just talking about things, and she asked, what are you going to be preaching on Sunday? And I said, we're actually starting a new sermon series on Proverbs. And she said, I've never heard anybody preach through Proverbs. So if you were here last week and you were kind of embarrassed that you weren't in the in crowd, uh, my grandmother isn't either. She's 79, and she's pastor's wife and, and loves the Lord, and she'd never heard a sermon series on Proverbs. As I think about it, most of us, a struggle with the book of Proverbs. It's abused often in our lives, in our minds, in our communities. So hopefully through this sermon series, we will all learn how to deal better with this literature, this, this word from God that we have received. And as we do that, I want you to think about two perspectives of Proverbs. First of all, I want you to think, who does not want to know the secret to life? I mean, if we, we set a thousand people down here and asked them, do you want to know the secret to a happy life? Do you want to know how to achieve all of your personal goals? Is it your desire to know everything about your related field of expertise and, and therefore be the top person in that field, paid and compensated in such a way? Wouldn't that be nice? And I... I would venture to say a thousand people, a thousand would say, absolutely, sign me up. I want to know that. That's what I want to know. And yet the book of Proverbs is written by a man who was just that. The human author of the book of Proverbs, outside of Adam and Jesus Christ, I believe, was the most intelligent man to ever grace the planet. King Solomon writes the majority of the Proverbs. There's only two Proverbs that are even under question. After thousands of years of study of this book, no one questions the first 29 chapters as being authentically Solomon. Some believe chapter 31 is also Solomon under another name, and some believe that is a, another king of Israel. And then chapter 30, we are certain, is not Solomon's proverb. But all the other proverbs belong to Solomon. All of them. And yet, by the end of the sermon, you're going to see that in this perspective of wisdom, this perspective, the give me the key to life so I can be the greatest, in this field, even by the life of our author, we're going to see it runs dry. You cannot hope to fathom all there is about this life and live in such a way that everything is right. I don't care how wise you are, how much you know. 
There's another way to look at Proverbs. And that is that we're not seeking knowledge or wisdom by itself, but rather we're seeking the one who is wisdom. We're desiring to know, and by the sermon title, you probably see where I'm headed in this entire sermon series. We will be seeking wisdom. Who is he? Wisdom. Who is he? That's really what the Proverbs are for us. They are a window into the life and time and person of Jesus Christ. Who is wisdom embodied. So there's two ways we could look at this. You can leave this sermon series and you can say, he failed. I don't know how to be the best electrician. I don't know how to be the best dental hygienist. I don't know how to reach the top of the heap and be the richest and the smartest. He failed. The book of Proverbs is worthless. Or you can leave saying, oh, that book never failed to reveal to me who Jesus Christ is. The book of Proverbs was written in somewhere between and in, in between the years of 971 and six, about 680 B.C. Thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, this book was put together and crafted by the writer, by the human writer. And, and I just, today, this sermon is going to be basically a snippet, a look at the book. How does it divide? In Proverbs, we can see that in chapters 1 through 9, instructions to young men and young women. Instructions to youth. How you should live your youthful life so that you are prepared for the next phase of life. And then, in Proverbs 10, we switch over to talk about wisdom in our elder years. How is it that we can live the end of our life in such a way to bring glory to God? Proverbs 10 through 31. Proverbs 10 through 31. And as I said earlier, all of the Proverbs belong, except for these last two, belong to the king, the greatest king in knowledge to ever grace the earth outside of Jesus Christ, Solomon. But he didn't collect them all. The first 25, the first 24 chapters, he probably penned and wrote down and placed in a book which Hezekiah, a later king of Israel, found, and his scribes then added Solomon's other proverbs to the book. So it was editorialized from chapter 25 through 31. There was a previous proverb that stopped in chapter 24. 25 picks up with those Solomonic proverbs which were put into place by Hezekiah and his court as they found the law and found the prophets in their day. And so we have this book. It's ancient, it's old, it's filled with knowledge, and yet it's confusing. As we look at folly and wisdom, we're going to be looking at verses that seem often to contradict themselves on the surface, right? Do not answer a fool. And then the very next verse says what? Answer a fool. I thought you said, don't answer a fool. But now I'm supposed to answer a fool. What, what's going on? And that's common in the book of Proverbs. It says something, and then it comes back and gives the other side a parallel to what it previously said. So a lot of times people get confused in looking at that. Often people look at the book, book of Proverbs as promises. Proverbs are not promises. 
I'm going to say that again. Proverbs are not promises. Often I'll go in the Christian bookstore and pick up a book about the promises of God and it's filled with Proverbs. If you take the book of Proverbs as promises, you will live a frustrated life and you will think God has failed you. Proverbs that we take as promises. What's an example? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we don't have to leave this congregation to pass a mic around and you can tell me about children whose parents were raised them. You may be one who raised your children to love the Lord. You were not perfect, but you trained them and you prayed over them and you educated them. And everything you did was to bring them up in the admonition of the Lord and they are not walking with God today. They are not glorifying Jesus today. They are the furthest example from that. And so many times when, when I see parents crushed, it's because they've taken something as a promise that God never intended in that manner. Other things, like children are a heritage and a blessing to us is a principle that we're taught. So then extrapolate from that, that if that's the case, we should have 25 children, right? Because that means more blessing. Not necessarily. Right? But when we take the proverb and we say, the promise of God is if I have more kids, I'll be more blessed. We don't look at the other, the parallel to that is that may mean more grief in this temporal life. So it's dangerous in the Proverbs if we're not on the right track, if we're looking. And often the mistakes I see being made, and I've made many of them, is when we're taking them as that first route of understanding the Proverbs. I want you to understand, this is not a book to tell you how to get to the top of the heap make all the money you ever wanted to make, have the finest looking wife and the best children. That is not Proverbs. That is not what the book of Proverbs is. If we take it for what it was written for, it is a, it is a device to, to cause us to stare into the perfect wisdom of Jesus Christ. We will not leave disappointed. We will leave fulfilled. This book in chapter 1, verse 1 says, These are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So, as I said, it is undisputed. This is Solomon's. These are his thoughts. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Uh, also, we could say they're parables. Many of the Proverbs are parable-like in the way that they talk to us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So maybe you disagreed with my opening statements. There's one way and then another. Take it up with Solomon. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Right? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're going to see by the end of the day just this verse. So I want to introduce this book to you by looking at who Solomon was. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. 
Proverbs is not a historical book in the sense that it's not recounting for us the history of Israel. It is not a law book. It doesn't give to us any new commands or laws that we're to obey. The book of Proverbs is rather <clears throat> given to us by Solomon to guide us in our pursuit of Christ or our pursuit of the obedience of God or toward God. Who was Solomon? Well, Solomon was the son, we might say, uh, an illegitimate son in some ways because he was the son of David and Bathsheba. Now, his birth was under their marriage years, but we know David took her illegitimately. You remember? He killed his best friend Uriah. They had a son who died, and Solomon also comes from this union. He has older brothers, and he has younger brothers. He, I mean, excuse me, he has younger brothers who want to take his throne from him. And, and we're not going to go through all of that, but we know that when David came to God begging and pleading for the life of his, of his child, repenting of his sin, God told him, this, this son of yours will die, and the conflict that is in your home now will only increase. As long as David lived, his sons warred against one another. Remember, Absalom had the great plot to take the throne and to kill David and to murder his son, his son Solomon. Not just Absalom, but even the, the king's army desired to overtake. We see Joab in his deceitfulness trying to wiggle away the throne of Israel. And so Solomon is not born in a home where there's all this peace and tranquility. Don't get the picture of Solomon sitting around on a couch all of his younger years, soaking in all of this wisdom from the world. That's not Solomon's life. The majority of his early life, I, am, I picture it, I imagine it, being on the run, trying to hide from people, trying to kill him, trying to steal from him, trying to take the kingdom from him. And so his life was not some life of restitute and relaxation, but rather is a real life. And he comes to the throne at the end of David's life because God has promised that the king, David, would not build the great temple, but yet your son will build the temple. Solomon, as we know, did that. He built the temple. But what I particularly want us to see is in 1 Kings chapter 4. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 4, we see uh, that previously in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon says, it says of Solomon, Solomon is speak, spoken of here in, in 1 Kings 3 verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. This is his early years. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So he loves the Lord, and he walks in the statutes of his father, and he's making sacrifices. At Gibeon, he makes thousand, a thousand sacrifices. And look what happens in verse 5 of chapter 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. How many times have you wanted to have that dream? Ask what I shall give you. The Lord is standing there. And he asks, God asks, what do you want, Solomon? Solomon says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart, towards you and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son 
to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too, be, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, listen to this, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And we're told it pleased God that Solomon had asked him this uh, request. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God came and asked this man, the king of Israel, what do you want? And he said, I want wisdom. I don't want wisdom at this point in his life. I don't want wisdom for that first path so that I can be the greatest. I want wisdom so I can pursue you. That's really what he's saying. He desires, notice, to rule the people in righteousness. To do unto them what God would do unto them. This is your people. I can't rule them. You rule them through me. Make me understanding in my mind. Give me your, we might paraphrase it, God, give me your mind. That's what he wants. He wants the mind of God. That's his, that's his answer to the question. And then God blesses him with that mind and all the things he didn't ask for. Now we know from Matthew chapter 6 that no one has ever been arrayed like Solomon in all of his glory. Jesus says Solomon, out, his glory outdoes even that of the creation around you. He is a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's goodness. But it doesn't take us long to see how wise Solomon is. 1 Kings chapter 4, just one page over my Bible. Verse 29, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. I mean, this is God talking about him through the pen of the writer. He has knowledge like the sand on the seashore. I've met a lot of smart people. I've read books by people so smart I couldn't finish the book. I've watched the videos of men in debate that make my head hurt. I watched Dr. Lennox about a month ago over in Oxford giving a lecture on the quantum physics behind the universe. Ten minutes in, I'm toast. He's a brilliant Christian, by the way. I'm toast. God never said Dr. Lennox's mind had knowledge and wisdom like the grains of sand on a seashore. But he said it about Solomon. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East. All those Chinese proverbs you read and think so much of, Solomon's greater than them. 
and all the wisdom of Egypt, the most trained, the most scientific, the most mathematically advanced culture of their day, Solomon's greater. Solomon knows more. Greater than the philosophers from the East, greater than the mathematicians of Egypt, Solomon's mind is like the mind of a seashore. It extends seemingly endlessly. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite. I would have liked to have met this guy. And Haman. I mean, you know, if we're listing out smart people that go in the category with Solomon, I'm not thinking I make the top oh, million list. These guys are, you know, these guys are comparable. Hey, Solomon's smarter than Ethan. Boy, people are like, wow, he was smart. You know, they say, Solomon's smarter than Carlton. Be like, that ain't hard. These guys were smart. He goes through the list. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Look at verse 32. You want to know where our book we're going to study comes from? He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. The man had 3,000 proverbs at the tip of his tongue. And a thousand and five songs. I tried to write a song one time. I I couldn't get the tag. (laughs) Chris Christopherson is a great songwriter. He's written some of my favorite country music songs. He's not in the same class. Willie Nelson. These are great songwriters. Y'all don't believe me? Come on. Your Pandora radio does not go to the Waylon Jennings channel. Mine does. Great songwriters. They didn't have a thousand and five. This was a brilliant man. Three thousand proverbs, a thousand and five songs. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He's a botanist. It is believed that he classified all of the known plants in his day. Not just that, he spoke of the beasts and of the birds and of the reptiles and of the fish. To entertain himself, he went down to the local river and picked up things. And unlike many that thought, can that fry or can it not? He thought, That falls into this classification. This man was beyond anything we can imagine. His brilliance exceeded all the men of his day. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. In this period, children, the kingdom of Israel became the center of wealth in all of the world. The kings of the earth brought their treasure to get at the wisdom that Solomon had. Israel amount, uh, the amount of treasure that flowed into the treasure of Israel during this day would have made the modern world blush. He had gold and silver, all the fine jewels of the world, all because he was smart. He was wise. His understanding was great. And yet, 
he followed by the end of his life, that first path I described. Because from his youth, when he was following the Lord and he was seeking after God's mind, children, he turned his head to beautiful women. And he lusted after the riches of this world. Guys, you may be running a good race now, and so was Solomon when he was 12 and when he was 20. But it can all go up in smoke. In the middle of his life, the Bible says that he had not just one foreign wife, but 700. And his house was filled with over a thousand women. God said, don't marry foreign women. Solomon said, in all of his wisdom, I'll take 700 plus my concubines. He pursued the first path of wisdom, not Christ. Truly, we get the book of Ecclesiastes from this period in his life. Vanity. All is vanity. So he pursued this great wisdom. He had this great wisdom. And he, the way he turns it and uses it is for his own self, for his own good, not for Christ's name. I want to tell you three things about the book of Proverbs today. And we're going to exposit the verses as we go forward. This is not expositional. This is explanatory of the whole book. Three things I want you to take home with you today about the book of Proverbs. First, the book of Proverbs is filled with principles for real life. The book of Proverbs is filled with principles for real life. How to borrow money, when to borrow money, when not to borrow money. How to love your wife, how to raise your children, how to respect your elders. It is filled with practical, everyday wisdom for this life. How to stay off the foot, you keep your foot off the path of destruction in the harlot's house. Some of us need that one today. How to avoid adultery. How to, again, how to exalt Christ in your married life. How to not frustrate your children. And children, how not to frustrate your parents. All of this is there. Principles for real life. It's also filled with pictures of real life. The book of Proverbs is filled with pictures. A drunkard is like what? Come on now. Y'all never drank, so y'all lily white. So your moms didn't have to say to you, a dog returns. A drunkard is like a dog that returns to his vomit. Do you get that picture? I got it. When you think you could have one more and it wouldn't be too much, that proverb probably should come into your mind. Am I about to be a drunk returning to his vomit? When it's happened for the last 50 nights in a row, when it's happened for the last five years or 25 years that you've had that drink that you knew you shouldn't have had, you're only living out the picture that is given to us in the book of Proverbs. 
It is filled with principles for real life, pictures of real life. But more than anything, it's filled, of, it's filled up with a portrait of the way, the truth, and the life. More than anything, Proverbs is a portrait for us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever found yourself saying, man, I'd like to know what Jesus would do in this situation? I know you thought of it because they sold at least four billion of those little bracelets. WWJD, t-shirts, WWJD. Under that, they should have put the answer. Read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a picture, a portrait for us of the Lord Jesus. Because he filled up every one of these and lived them perfectly in his daily life. You look like you don't believe me. So we'll turn to Luke chapter 2 and we'll see a little bit of this and then, and then we'll close. I'm excited about the book of Proverbs. My mind has been engaged for some time now thinking about Proverbs and every time I'm driven to the Lord Jesus at the end of my study. Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> the famous story beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, to, uh, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus, the 12-year-old little boy Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Sitting among the teachers. Listening to them. And notice, asking them questions. Now, that might not strike you. But in Jesus' day, little boys didn't ask the rabbis questions. As a matter of fact, from the construction of this in its original form, we find that Jesus is not simply asking them questions like he doesn't have knowledge. He's asking them questions to increase their knowledge at 12 years old. He's asking the rabbi, the teachers, Questions. They're circled up around him. These old gray-haired teachers of Israel circled up around the Lord Jesus. And because he is the living embodiment of the Proverbs and the wisdom found there, he's asking them questions. He's listening to them and taking them further. Look what it says. He says, son, his mother said to son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Just like most of us don't understand the wisdom of the Proverbs, they didn't understand the wisdom of Jesus. They didn't get it. And so he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He lived out the first nine chapters of Proverbs as a child. He submitted himself to fallen, 
failed parents. Mothers, you think you got it tough because your 12-year-old asked you a question? Can you imagine Mary? She says, Jesus, take out the trash. And Jesus submissively does it. And as he picks up the trash to take it out, she thinks, this is my God. This is my creator. When Joseph said, boy, it's time to go, and they went on the job site, and they ran it, I, I just imagine, this isn't the scripture, I just imagine this. They get into a problem with a building project. Don't you know Joseph wants to say, hey, Jesus, hey, son, how do we do this? I can just see all the guys are rough. You know, I think of them as rough guys like our construction guys can tend to be. Rough, burly, man's men. Jesus standing around on the work project. Everybody's scratching their head. And then they look at Jesus and say, hey, could you help us out? I mean, can you give us the answer? We can't figure it out. But he was submissive to them. Fully, absolutely embodying honor and obey your parents. For this is right. Living out the Proverbs, listening to the counsel of his mother in his young years, and following the commands of his dad so that his life would not be a life of distress and failure. He submitted himself to them, and Nazareth saw the impact of it. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. And man, he did that by following the Proverbs, by living them out, by putting flesh on them. And he had this view of himself. Look at Matthew chapter 12. I'm just trying to show you. <clears throat> when I'm making all these Christological references in Proverbs, I don't want you to say, well, I don't think it's that way. I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't think, you know, that we can do that with the Proverbs. The Proverbs are not meant to point to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees come and say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you in verse 38. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For such, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and with, with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Where did Solomon get those 3,000 proverbs? From Jesus. From the Son of God. You know why? Because in 1 Kings 4, the God that he saw was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I really believe that. I don't believe any man sees the Father except the Son and to whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. When it says in the Old Testament that the Lord came in a dream and stood before Solomon and God said, that's Jesus. 
And what Solomon asked him for was wisdom. And what Jesus gave him was the tip of the iceberg. The man that classed every known plant and animal in his day that was so wise that all the kings of the earth came to him bringing their treasure troves to put into his treasury to gain just a little of his knowledge. The one who sat on the throne and judged between mothers trying to kill children and prostitutes being harmed and cheated in the day of Solomon, that man sitting on the throne was only a small shadow of the greater Solomon who would come. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ embodied for us and embodies for us the pictures and the principles so that the portrait is completed not as some distant reality but something near to us because we have His Spirit in us. You say, I can't be as smart. I can't be as wise as Solomon. Maybe not in earthly matters, but in spiritual ways, you have much greater ability. You have a much more sure God than Solomon. You have Christ. And what I'm going to be calling us to is I look at the Proverbs that puts us at the feet of Jesus. That's my goal anyway. That's my hope, is that when we leave here, we are more enthralled with the Lord than when we came every single Sunday. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, Paul says for us in verse 30, And because of Him, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, who put on the flesh for us, and became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We hopefully will leave as a people boasting in the wisdom of Christ as we leave Proverbs, knowing the greater Solomon. Not a fool like those of Israel who rejected the greater Solomon, but a wise man who came and builds his house on the firm foundation of Jesus. That's our hope at the end of Proverbs. Not that we follow route number one that leads us to worldly acclaim, but route number two in the Proverbs that leads us to the throne of Jesus. That's where we're going. That's where we want to be by the end of this. And so we'll begin the exposition. It will not be verse by verse. Because verse by verse exposition in Proverbs falls flat. Proverbs will have to be synthesized, brought together in many ways. It will be difficult. I need your prayers. I don't have to tell you there aren't a lot of sermon series on Proverbs. There aren't a lot of good commentaries on the book of Proverbs. As I see it, most men have run from the book of Proverbs. And so, foolish me, I'm running right in the middle of it, all right? So, pray for me as I study. Ask God to give me understanding that comes from Him, as only He can do through His Spirit, to illumine the Word, make it real, so that I can hopefully break it apart for you. Our minds will be challenged the mind is a beautiful thing. It's given to us by God to glorify and honor Him. I, I just want to be real personal with you for a moment. It's just kind of put everything in perspective for me to go home and visit with my mother yesterday. Amy and I and the children spent the day with her. and You know, she's, uh, she's at the end. She's, she's, she's just really lost most abilities. She's had Alzheimer's now for, she turns, she'll turn 60 in October. She's had it about 11 years that we know of. And as I led my mother by the hands, 
and sat next to her with my children. She made no, no intelligent communication. Lots of babbling, lots of misplaced words, blank stares. As the day went, you know, people kind of scattered around, and I just sat next to her. She was tired. Stressful day for her. You know, this guy shows up at her house to take her somewhere else, and she's not sure that's safe or not. That guy just happens to be her son, but, but she doesn't know that. Sitting there, the whole room's kind of doing their own thing. I just began to sing. And I sang, just like I do my children, I put them to bed. I sang the same songs I sing to my two-year-old every night. Jesus, 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 there is a fountain filled with blood. Come thou fount of every blessing, amazing grace. This woman who was non-communicative, literally, did not know who we were really most of the time when I began to sing the words of those great hymns. She began to sing. She began to sing. Locked away deep inside the recesses of her mind is the language of the relationship she has had with the God of Proverbs from her childhood. My mom was a chemist. She was a chemistry teacher by trade and a physics teacher. At one point, just for you school teachers and you're stressed, and I know you get stressed, and it's a stressful time of year, my mom had seven preps every day for high school. She prepped algebra one, algebra two, physics, chemistry, basic geometry. She prepped trigonometry, and she prepped for a watered-down consumer-type math. At one point in her career, she prepped seven different subjects every day, and they weren't underwater basket weaving. She was brilliant. She went back to school when I was a kid, got her degree. I got to see her graduate. She was brilliant, hardworking, a single mom for pieces of her life, hardworking. She's lost everything. Get this, she's lost everything she knew in this world except the knowledge and wisdom she has of the Lord. It's still there. And all you have to do is sing a line of a good old gospel hymn and it's right there on the tip of her tongue. She did not pursue the first path. If she had pursued the first path of knowing Proverbs and wanted to be the top in her field, it would have abandoned her at this point. She pursued the second path. She pursued a path of knowing Jesus Christ with her mind. And even in Alzheimer's, it has not left her. Proverbs is real. And what it teaches about Jesus is foundational, and I hope that I can just open a little of it to you over the next few weeks. Let's pray.